This week, I am going to look at some key moments in the latter part of the phenomenology of spirit. Primarily, I'm going to look at what Hegel has to say about culture and religion, moral theories and ethical life, Zittlichkeit. The latter part of the phenomenology of spirit is concerned with clarifying sets of social practices which count as spirit. As we saw last week, human spirit, in the form of reason and understanding, Vernunft and Verstand, is split into drives, drives toward unity and fragmentation. This was resolved in spirit itself, a series of practical dispositions and competencies. In the latter part of the phenomenology of spirit, Hegel expands on what spirit entails, incorporating a discourse on culture, religion, law and art. In other words, as it is a phenomenology, he is asking what it is like to exist as a person within the concrete moral life of society. Or put in a rather trite sense, what does spiritual welfare look like? Probably not a question we ask very often. Geist makes explicit what it is like to be a modern person, a historical person, a being grasping and negotiating the competing and conflicting discourses we encounter and which binds our common life together as free human beings. Hegel begins the latter part of his phenomenology of spirit in much the same way he began to talk about sincerity. Effectively, he asks what the ethical analogue of sincerity is. The answer is the point where we, inevitably it must be said, simply follow the rules and regulations of the society we find ourselves in. Here, in an unquestioning way, we simply submit to the forms of culture and tradition we are used to. In turn, as our spiritual self-understanding deepens, we become estranged from this unreflective background. In Hegel's famous defence of art, Introductory Lectures on Aesthetics, he explores the regenerative capacities of art with an apocalyptic tone. For Hegel, the fact that early 1800s German art had become an object of philosophical speculation and criticism entailed an end of art. Art could no longer be considered a universal phenomenon entwined with the ethical substance of a culture as it was for the Homeric oral traditions of ancient Greece. If art is not entwined with the totality of life then single artworks are valuable only as items of criticism which in turn become fragmented into a variety of different remnants. Hegel's point was not so much that art was over and would no longer be practised. Instead, he was trying to show that we cannot understand art as something totally embedded in life, as it was, say, in the Homeric tradition, or even, say, a biblical tradition. If we do think of the artwork as tied to specific objects, artworks, or even artistic practices, which no longer really matter, since they are not embedded in broader historical, cultural, or spiritual processes. Art is most valuable where it reflects philosophical forms of recognition. Hegel makes a similar claim about religion as a form of consciousness. Hegel devotes a substantial final section of the phenomenology of the spirit to discussing religion as a form of life. As we saw in the last lecture, reason and understanding, Vernunft and Verstand, typify the duality of thought. Philosophical thinking is disposed towards both fragmentation and unity. The latter notion of unity 
has its precursor in religious forms of consciousness. This is why we cannot really say that Hegel is an atheist, at least in our modern understanding of the term. Religion as a form of consciousness is one of the more sophisticated forms of thought that we have for thinking of unity. Having said that, religion is not the primary form of thinking for Hegel. That honor stands with philosophy, or the absolute knowing of of the conclusion of the phenomenology of spirit. Religion holds a similar status in the phenomenology of spirit to art in Hegel's lectures on aesthetics. We must think of religion in a modern sense, whereas once religion governed and dominated all forms of life, ontology, logic, aesthetics, ethics, jurisprudence, now religion is experienced as a set of remnants of a dominating cultural system. This is not to say that religion cannot still dominate the life of a polis, nor that it is gone or ineffective, only that after modernity, and more concretely proximate to Hegel's own time, the French Revolution, we can now understand ourselves without the mastery of the divine. The truth of religion is that in the modern world, religion becomes one of a myriad of different forms of life. And if you think of what religion is now, it is somewhat like this, with different religions offered as differing lifestyle strategies. Religion, whether it is on the numerical wane or ascendancy, does not hold the same purchase for the organisation of daily life and the establishment of forms of selfhood. One might reasonably object that there is plenty of religious fundamentalism doing the rounds these days, but that too is one more form of religious life among many. That fundamentalism underlines a nostalgia for a more unified, coherent worldview rather underlines Hegel's point. Nostalgia for the past is a peculiarly modern phenomenon. In terms of a philosophical understanding of our modern condition, we need to see religion as one more form of life pursuing survival. Again, this is not to say that the religious does not function, work, or even at an individual level offer solace or an experience of comfort, it most certainly can. But from Hegel's perspective, we need to see that that, that things which humans used to assume as the be-all and end-all, that is, religion, God, holds at the very least a contested status. What can we now say fulfills that function? Technology? Media? The answer really is culture, which is everywhere. As such, religion is culture. And right now, culture has become the most vertiginous, infinite phenomenon, escapable and all-consuming thing of all. There is a sense for Hegel that if religion is now culture, it finds itself instantiated in different competing culture groupings. So you could say Islam, Buddhism, Western Buddhism, Catholicism, Anglicanism, New Age spirituality, etc., etc. However, this is not really religion in the fullest sense for Hegel. Religion in its purest expression is that which concerns the whole, the infinite, the all. And the value of religion historically for Hegel is that it is a form of life which makes thinkable the dissolution of the I, the dissolution of the self in the absolute. Or even more deeply where the self recognises itself as part of the absolute. Consequently, where religion has been a dominant index of social, economic and political life, what it does do is try to encompass everything as a totalising impetus.
which tries to dominate all walks of life, if you like. On closer inspection, even when religion does play a more dominant role in world affairs, it never can truly accomplish this for Hegel. Religion cannot but make itself comprehensible in material terms as it relates to particular people, objects, images, texts, institutions or totems. Thus, religion requires both reason and understanding. We understand religion as a form of universal holistic consciousness, but equally a phenomenon that fragments and particularizes and even materializes itself. And in this latter point, we can see Hegel's making explicit of the cultural and aesthetic dimensions of religion. Religion becomes forms of sentiment or feeling. And by feeling, I do not mean a lesser form of understanding like sincerity. Rather, religion imposes itself on us as an affection or an affectation for the sublime. Religion is, in Hegel's view, a feeling for. But a feeling for what? In its purest expression, a feeling for allness or all reverence and worship for that which is greater than ourselves. So religion is not really something subjective. In many ways, this is quite obvious. The last thing religion is concerned with is particular selves. However, even if this is its goal, religion does fall short. Why? Because religion in affirming the all, it affirms the indeterminate, the absolute, the indistinct, the non-particular, and thus becomes alienating. The purest expression of religion is thus nihilistic, as it is indifferent to the void. And the more religion grasps the void the more it finds itself descending into the worldly, striving to express itself through particular cultural forms, through the particular itself. For example, bells, incense, buildings and totems. Religion cannot escape efforts to represent itself in the concrete world, in hymns, iconography, smells and moral injunctions. Religion is thus premised on a very basic contradiction. It presents itself as both otherworldly and thisworldly at the same time. And on one hand, it grasps the infinite, but on the other hand, it represents itself in the finite. This is why Hegel calls religion a form of picture thinking, representational thinking, Vorstellung in German. Religion, in its purest expression, to borrow a phrase from Charles Mingus, is a folk form. Picture thinking is a type of self-understanding, but one where individuals represent the all in the popular. Thus, when Hegel says picture thinking, he thinks of religion as a type of visibility, or more accurately, a spectacle. Religion thrives on the desire to manifest, to show the unmanifestable. This contradiction shows that the function of religion is to render that which is most immaterial and most abstract, the all, the one, the divine, the force, as concrete, sensuous and material. And vice versa, where that which is concrete, particular and sensuous as the all. Ultimately, this is a type of misrecognition for Hegel, presenting us a view of the world turned upside down, where we are eternal, infinite and all-knowing rather than concrete and historical. As such, it gives us a distorted view of reality as well as an inverted form of self-consciousness, performing the most potent form of abstraction, the one where the given world is no longer real. Again, let me be clear. I don't think that Hegel is saying that religion is philosophically worthless. There are a number of philosophical advantages to religious forms of self-consciousness. 
For one, religious yearning for the sublime imposes on humans the question of the absolute. For another, religious feeling is a step towards philosophical maturity as it dissolves the separation of mind and world or subject and object. However, in the last analysis, Hegel does think religious feeling is ultimately a developmental phase of human self-understanding and in the end comes up against the problem of the universal and the particular. Put simply, if religion is concerned with the all, God, the one, then it cannot tolerate particular instantiations of itself, for example, in specific religious forms of life or denominations. Conversely, if religion is particular, then it cannot tolerate the all or other forms of religious life for that matter. Thus, reaching this conceptual predicament shows how religion as picture thinking must be overcome unless we are to face down an infinite egress of competing religious truth claims. This is my belief, this is your belief, this is my belief, I don't believe. Even if spirit comes to self-understand itself through picture thinking, even the picture thinking of religion, this is necessary only insofar as it makes manifest its own limitations. Picture thinking obscures the reality of thought as living in time in the world and thus makes us think of ourselves as foreign to the very world we inhabit. This is a very simple point once you get down to it. Faith is a form of self-alienation. This all begs the question, what might an unalienated form of life look like? Self-alienated spirit concerns itself with multiplicity. By multiplicity, I mean competing forms of culture, bildung. Alongside religion, one of the dominant forms of culture building, or world building if you want to use a term from science fiction, which Hegel inhabited was the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment, as well emerging from its principal avatars, philosophers like Diderot, Voltaire, Rousseau, Wollstonecraft, was a radical cultural movement incorporating the centrality of rationality and progress, as well as reform movements, a general rejection of supernaturalism, fostering of religious tolerance and literary and artistic movement, a cultural political activism, as well, I suppose, as the historical termination of feudalism. Hegel saw the Enlightenment as one more form of life amongst others. On the other hand, he supported the historical truth of the Enlightenment, that humans could understand ourselves on our own terms. In some sense, what he appreciated was the Enlightenment's commitment to imminent rather than transcendent explanation. By imminent, I mean that all explanation requires this worldly natural explanation. On the other hand, he was quite critical of Enlightenment culture, chastising what he saw as its lack of spirit, its shallow instrumentalism and reduction of all questions to individual preference and taste. Here we can see where a more conservative right Hegelian thought emerges. Hegel's scolding of the Enlightenment is basically a critique of modern liberalism, which you will find repeated in most contemporary forms of communitarianism. We can think, for example, of the work of Alistair MacIntyre, Charles Taylor, or Patrick Deneen. In The Phenomenology of Spirit, a figure that Hegel touches on is Rameau's nephew, the titular character from Diderot's short dialogue. Well worth a look if you're interested. Moe's nephew is quite a funny, yet also sinister character, who is effectively the antithesis of Bildung, a character who sees things only in terms of gain and loss, self-serving, and who deems all that is valuable is the self who is committed to the now, to immediate gratification, to the moment as we now might put it. Such a self is the entrepreneurial self, inventive, agile and manipulative. Moe's nephew is a paragon of 
the disintegrated, unformed consciousness. Remo's nephew is basically the type of person you get if you reduce all experience to sense experience, a form of spirit which only sees the truth of itself in the now, detemporalized. Here Hegel takes aim at the empirical spirit of the Enlightenment, but this analysis extends to other forms of morality which emerge from the Enlightenment, namely utilitarianism. Utilitarianism is an ethical theory which attempts to apply a rational calculus, that is, a principle of utility, to all ethical decision-making. Its chief exponents would be David Hume, Jeremy Bentham, James Mill, John Stuart Mill to an extent, and laterally, uh, Peter Singer. Basically, the right and just thing to do is maximise pleasure and minimise pain. This is the moral analogue of empirical reductionism for Hegel, that which is morally true is reduced to that which I experience and nothing more. This form of enlightenment ethics does not really amount to much for Hegel since nothing is of value beyond pleasure and its experience. This is a superficial form of finitude, where that which is true, valuable and what matters is equivalent to experiencing the world of things. In an enlightenment form of consciousness, its spirit is reduced to self-objectification, and I mean self-objectification in the fullest sense of that term that I can muster. Hegel sees utilitarianism treating reality itself and the person as an object. Again, we must always see these as forms of thought for Hegel. He's not saying that we do not, in everyday situations, uh, not apply utilitarian sentiments, or that it might even not be useful in an instrumental sense. After all, it's in the name. I think what he objects to more is that we let utilitarianism become the spirit of our times. If we do this... We treat reality, existence, and the concrete world itself as an object to be manipulated, or as a means to an end. The inhabitants of such a utilitarian world are consequently exposed to objectification and instrumentalization. But on another level, Hegel's objection to utilitarianism is much more straightforward. Utilitarianism gets desire wrong. Humans desire much more than pleasure and the avoidance of pain. Humans are mattering beings. If utilitarianism is envisaged as an impoverished form of ethical culture, this is also the case with Kant's deontology. Although Hegel needs to present a bit of a more complicated argument to make Kant say the same thing as utilitarianism, Kant roughly presents the subjective version of Enlightenment ethics. Of course, Kant's categorical imperative is posed as the duty of one to the duty of all. However, this is conceived as a form of self-legislation, where an autonomous individual gives themselves the law. The trouble with this for Hegel is that there is something solipsistic about Kant's ethics. While this was obviously not Kant's objective, Hegel believes that Kant fall foul of moral solipsism despite his best efforts. The reason for this oversight in Hegel's view is because Kant locates ethics in conscience, and conscience which, while it might seem subjective, is in fact another version of sincerity. For example, I have an immediate sense of what is right about my experience of competing duties. Put another way, conscience sees or senses what is the right thing to do in opposition to the tangle of conflicting duties and desires we face. Again, despite Kant's best efforts, there is something very sensual about his ethics. Kant's hyper-rationalism really expands the egotistical ethical agent because it is continually geared towards specifics, toward particular situations, where it 
just knows what is the right thing to do, what is the just thing to do. One could push these even further and suggest that Kantian ethics are in fact relativistic, as the moral law is situationally applied. Now Kant was exceptionally clear that ethics were not a matter of subjective feeling or caprice. But Hegel's thought is that conscience is only certain of what it itself ought to do, and thereby precludes the social constitution of its own self. While the categorical imperative can certainly be useful for Hegel, that it is useful rather demonstrates his point. It expresses morality as a form of utility. No one is saying we don't have conscience, but we shouldn't take conscience as the ultimate bar of what counts as morally intelligible. That the moral law is a form of conscience means that one feels bound to obey one's own moral intuitions. There is something deeper going on here. Hegel is warning against the purity of conscience. As if we follow the categorical imperative to its logical conclusion, we end up in a place of utter voluntarism, or judge dread territory. I am the law. This is an absurd prospect, since why ever should intimately personal edicts of conscience reveal themselves as universal rules? Thus, what is supposed to be universal law is actually dependent on personal emotional and self-sensing factors. If followed to its logical conclusion, there is something psychopathic about this rhetoric. Hence, beware of the man of conscience, as their morals are surely about them and not you. Like Rameau's nephew, what Kantian deontology offers us, perhaps unintentionally, is self-interest masquerading as morality. And here again we can see Hegel's dissatisfaction with certain elements of the Enlightenment in the context of morality. Whether utilitarian or deontological, the Enlightenment provides a form of thought committed to mere sensuous life and self-interest. You can probably guess where this is going. Where religion overemphasizes the all, the eternal and divine, the Enlightenment limits its understanding to the world of things or the particular. Both forms of thought are historically necessary, however. They both end up in separating the finite from the infinite, though. The universal from the particular, the absolute from the sensuous, useful and moral. Hegel, as we should by now expect, wants to collapse this distinction dialectically. The Enlightenment is valuable insofar as it inaugurates a renewal of faith in this world. Religion is valuable insofar as it connects humans to questions of mattering and purposes. While Enlightenment attitudes remain empty and are characterised by enduring absence and yearning, similarly, religious values alienate the self from the world and equally abstract the self towards the reality of an unreachable beyond. In reality, both are forms of extraction removed from concrete life. Hegel, in the latter parts of the Phenomenology of Spirit, attempts to mediate these strangely proximate but seemingly irreconcilable oppositions. This Hegel attempts to carry out in his famous notion of Zittigkeit, or ethical life. At the outset of Chapter 6 of the Phenomenology of Spirit, Hegel says, Zittigkeit is true spirit. Zittigkeit is concrete ethical life for Hegel. It refers to the world we inhabit, are born into, a world which precedes our subjective orientation. It is quite a broad notion of communal practice as determined by norms, atmospheres, ideals and senses. The first thing to try and understand is that it is not an abstraction. And by abstraction I mean it is not an abstracting from concrete life, our being in the world as Heidegger would later call it. Thus we cannot really understand it as a set of moral principles. As we saw with deontological and utilitarian ethics, these moral principles are abstractions, derivations from the factuality of, of living. 
there is something removed and dispassionate about them for Hegel, and our ethical life is first and foremost immediate rather than mediated by principles, formulations, or in some instances moral impositions. Indeed, one of the primary problems of existing ethical theory is that we abstract universal laws from particular or situational principles. So, for example, say if I was a nurse in a critical care unit who had to make life or death decisions regarding end-of-life patients, one can easily envisage in such a situation where utilitarianism could be valuable for guiding snap decisions. The problem for Hegel would arise when such a nurse would abstract that particular experience, rules and principles, as that which should govern all forms of life. Another problem with existing ethical theories is that they resolve themselves in forms of individualism. Here Hegel is making a point that should be familiar to modern ears, and that is that the abstractions of modern theories is that the individual self, the subject, is taken as the arbiter of what is good. If this is the case, what we are left with is a society which becomes increasingly atomized, with individuals severed from a sense of belonging and community. If, as with Kant, the individual attempts to universalise themselves, they then find themselves in an odd predicament. Their autonomous self is no one in particular. Hence, this pseudo-objective sense of self is severed from society, art, culture, institutions. In other words, all those things which can give it meaning. The atomization is felt as a deficiency in meaning purpose, a sense that the self is part of something greater than themselves, or as Hegel puts it in his lecture on aesthetics, a disconnect from a sense of the epic. Hegel predicts that this is a huge problem confronting modern societies. If you have a society which is a collective of individuals, this will not result in a harmonious rational society where all individuals and interest groups sit down and negotiate and compromise peaceably in an adult manner. What you do get is a society of unhappy consciousnesses, an alienated society, an alienation which morphs into resentment, and thus in an aggrieved and indignant society which frantically seeks out meaning and belonging in the most preposterous of places. In other words, you get the rabble, or populism. In opposition, Hegel's offers us a view of society as a form of cyclicite, or as a type of ethics, or ethical life rather than morality. Hegel uses cyclicite as a contrast, even a curative to the forms of consciousness of the morality of modern individualism. But what is it? Roughly, cyclicite is communal practices. It could be anything from implicit and explicit rules, institutional powers and practices, rituals, or all the communal norms which dictate the life of an individual in the society they find themselves in. Sitlikite is a complex notion, though. We should be careful. Hegel is not suggesting Sitlikite is nostalgia, nor is it a form of pre-established harmony which modern sensibilities deviate from and which we need to return to. Modern sensibilities as emphasis on tolerance, autonomy and individual morality, could very well be a form of cyclicite. Modern sensibility does determine the horizon of expectations as to what counts as moral and immoral, proper and improper, or appropriate, to use a word from our own times. Equally, equally there could be pre-modern cyclicite, or Christian cyclicite. Irrespective of how it manifests, cyclicite is everything binding a community together at a particular historical juncture, and is thus an exceptionally capacious notion incorporating everything from love, family, country, marriage, police, law, government, entertainment, or culture. Sitlikite is quite an active notion in the fullest sense of the word. Sitlikite is custom and habit and tradition. But it is also not reducible to custom, habit and tradition. 
It also describes the sense that our political community is always at stake, to be worked for, and which all individuals are concerned with. If this is not the case, then we become alienated and resentful. In contrast to Kant, we do not require ideal postulates of morality separate from the concrete practices and activities of ethical life itself. The key to ethical life, and here Hegel is Aristotle in mind, the key to the good life is concretely engaging with whatever shared commitments define our ethical life. If ethical life is to be meaningful for Hegel, it must not be abstract, rather it must be lived, or better living. Things have to matter, our shared commitments need to be worked out. And thus, in a way, the shared norms and commitments which shape our cyclicite must therefore not be thought of as finished, complete, or worked out. Quite the opposite, in fact. They must be in the process of being worked out. Again, we should note Hegel is not an absolutist in the ethical sphere. He's not saying individuals are not feelings, emotions or interests as they live in a society. But what is crucial is that individual freedom is only intelligible insofar as the individual exists in a network of social goods and institutional protections which enable it to work. So Sittlikite certainly is formed of as unthinking habituation or relation to custom and tradition. However, existing customs are insufficient as a criteria for ethical life as we should not mistake the tastes and predilections of a particular community as offering sufficient reasons for ethical action. Citricite is also an activity of transformation. Or in colloquial terms, we take what is near and dear to us and subject it to scrutiny as a possible candidate for enabling a flourishing life for all. So also, Citricite is the work, activities and practices we engage to make real, to actualise ethical life or flourishing. What is distinct about Hegel's notion of Sittlichkeit is that it should be understood in terms of the types of powers, dispositions, habits which engender the optimum functioning of a society. Society, culture, art and politics, the market all contribute to enabling the question of how lives are to be lived well. This is not the case, at least according to Hegel, for the individual morality promulgated in utilitarianism and deontology, since those ultimately concern questions of immediate experience. Sittlichkeit, ethical life or the ethical good is intelligible only in light of the idea of freedom, but freedom not as a form of voluntaristic self-assertion. Freedom can only make sense in light of practical reason, where reason continually discourses on the questions which matter. The activity of reasoning over issues that matter in a community fosters a community of inquiry, and by inquiry here Hegel means more than just an academic conference. A community of inquiry provides real, concrete and determinate orientations, issuing sets of contestable demands as to what is best for society and its institutional provision. But this does seem quite general, imprecise even. I think this is necessarily so. Hegel sees our norms as fundamentally provisional. By norm, I mean any form of life or set of commitments we are disposed towards. Norms should not be confused with normalised. Norms, or the normative in the simplest terms, are roles we can or cannot adopt. Put in other terms, norms are things that we that we are, thought simultaneously with things that we should or could be. Sitlikite is thus a kind of hermeneutical normativity. By hermeneutic I mean the norms which shape our ethical life are also interpretive forms, or even better, they are the stage upon which we trash out the distinction and orientation of our society at large. Again, Robert Pippin's formulation is valuable here. Sitlikite is something which is achieved or or it is achievable once we discern the necessity of mutual reciprocity after the master-slave dialectic. Again, what is important here is that things matter. 
The norms of Sitlakite are only valuable because they are historical, temporary and open to revision. They are precisely not valuable when they are reified, ahistorical or abstract moral principles. The Sitlakite is not simply a matter of following moral prescriptions, i.e. doing what one is told or saying something is right because my grandparents thought it was right or put simply by conforming. Instead, an essential prerequisite of Sitlakite is that practitioners disidentify with the norms that are second nature to them. This is what the master-slave shows. We cannot have care, we cannot have shared sets of commitments without an element of risk and sacrifice. That very risk is constitutive of ethical life. It makes it possible. Thus, Sitlikite requires the sacrifice of self-certainty, if you like. The sin-certainty of moral principles requires the reformations of one's context and identity. And Sitlikite, an essential condition of a flourishing ethical culture, as well as a flourishing political sphere, is mechanisms which enables individuals to recognise, acknowledge the authority of shared sets of facts, commitments and norms beyond their individual predilections. Really, what Hegel is saying is that we cannot be happy unless we recognise the shared sets of assumptions, expectations and standards which govern and orient our public life. Basically, public life and public commitment are essential for happiness. We saw this in the mutual reciprocity which the master-slave turned to overcome their respective sets of dependencies. This is what freedom means and is utterly crucial for living a good life, but freedom is only found in the doing of it, in the making concrete, in the making work, in the actualizing of one's individuality through the other, which in turn becomes enriched by operating within a rational state. The rational state itself is not something given. Again, Hegel is not saying do what the government tells you or something as stupid as do what the police tell you simply because they are the police. Hence, political structures are only rational in so far as they enable a flourishing life, a sense where they enable individuals to be attuned or at home with their world and communities, and which allows individuals and communities to pursue shared sets of commitments. But embedded in all these ideas is the possibility of misrecognition, risk and contingency. In some sense, no matter how well planned a society is, no matter how much technocratic micromanagement governs us, Political wisdom can only occur when we accept that there is no straight path towards freedom. What we crave most of all is reconciliation. But reconciliation is only intelligible once we discern that our political structures are fragile, precarious and in perpetual peril of disintegration. That recognition is the condition of our freedom. Once we recognise that, that our societies need to be worked for, that they matter, then we can attain political wisdom. Sitlikite, then, is a community continually committing to sustaining, maintaining itself, governed by the binding force of mutual recognition. Hegel, in his most Nietzschean moment, is attempting to inaugurate a new humanism. The last pages of the Phenomenology of Spirit inaugurate a vital, even exhilarating notion of the human as free, concrete beings moving towards emancipation. This is not humanism in the narrow sense of enlightenment empiricism, but a deeper humanism, a spiritual humanism, or perhaps a spiritual realism that is absolute and all-embracing. The big reveal, I suppose, is that the absolute is neither matter nor mind, nor God nor atoms, but ourselves. Humans in the world itself are the objects of reverence. Hegel's excitement stems from this joyful wisdom. And there is a reason people suggest Beethoven's music is the soundtrack to German idealism. Across 
the phenomenology of spirit, Hegel presents a very diverse account of the different ways that spirit comes to self-understand itself. The whole book is an exercise in making explicit that which is implicit. By the end of the book, where Hegel reveals the absolute, we realise that Geist, or spirit, is effectively a temporal and historical being. Geist is what it does, a concrete being in the world continually coming to understand itself, as well as understanding the essentially developmental nature of its own self-understanding. At the end of the text, this apprehension or grasping is the crowning achievement of the book. Again, we must remember that none of the other forms of self-understanding that we've looked at, for example, sense certainty, perception, force, reason, understanding, master-slave, spirit are unnecessary. They do play a role in the transition to a higher or better, a more attuned sense of understanding ourselves as developmental beings. Hegel's book is trying to articulate the historical sedimentations which have occurred in understanding ourselves as modern, free beings. This is not an end, so to speak. Hegel is not saying now we are finished, now that we are modern and that Hegel has come along, there is nothing left to do. Modernity itself too is a form of self-understanding in a state of development. Modernity too delivers its own forms of alienation and risk which will need to be superseded. We move from pre-modern to modern to the necessity of cyclicite. And in many ways the phenomenology spirit is a call to action. The philosophical task, philosophical wisdom and the attendant happiness it provides for us comes from the basic insight that we need to make active change in the world in order to appreciate our historical constitution, understand our present as well as transform our future. Hence, that which is transcendent is that which is imminent. Only when we know this, only when we interpret things in these ways can we build a better politics, better institutions, better practices, better ethical formations and better aesthetic appreciation, precisely because doing this provides us and our societies with greater insight, self-awareness, better mutual recognition, as well as a better understanding of what we are, as well as the kind of being we can become. Effectively, philosophy. Philosophy as a form of self-interpretation saves the world. The point is to change the world. We can only do that when we understand it.